This is Space Life and Other Dumb Ideas, a sci-tech, science-spec, pop culture podcast out of Cape Town, South Africa. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your podcast platform of choice. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and check out spacelifeandotherdumbideas.com. You can also listen and drop a tip in our digital tip jar at lalelamedia.com forward slash spacelife. In December 2015, Space Life was invited to bring our dumb ideas to a two-day celebration of creative spirit in Cape Town, sponsored by Converse. Over three episodes, this is what went down. It was a vibe. It's messy. It's noisy. There's music. You'll be okay. In part one, the gang gets together for the year's roundup, talking Google's deep dream nightmares and digital art. Can a machine create? What is art? We also talk ocean garbage and equator action. We talk electric plants, rocket landings, and space elevators. It's time for another good idea, bad idea. Diamonds are a girl's best friend, or is it burgers? Sea monkey class systems and our longtime favorite, tardigrades. In fact, this is the Water Bears Picnic. Tangled in strings, we also talked to string theorist Gareth Kemp out of the University of Johannesburg about the makeup of the universe, what happens if you pull the wrong string. Rounding it out, we talked to Howard Fivey, writer and director of micro-budget South African zombie film Last One's Out, talking the South African film industry and making movies on a shoe string budget. See what I did there? Uh, Star Wars just come out, so we also talk about that. Let's go to space. Let's get tangled. Space Live, another dumb ideas. Uh, live at the creative, spirit. celebrating creative spirits. Sh- spirit, celebrating creative spirit. Spirits. Spirits. Johnny's here. Al's here. Julian and Bindi are here. Uh, Dan's floating around. Lion is here. And uh, through the course of the through the course of the special, we'll be chatting to some of the creatives on show here, as well as guests coming in. Uh, to talk to us about all things from string theory through uh, the cosmic microwave background, um, independent zombie movies made for next to no money, and a couple of other uh, exciting tidbits. In the roundup, uh, what have we got? Um, well, we're here at this awesome science event, and I'm looking around at lots of different booths with weird booths. I don't know, like, yeah, like booths that people live inside and do this artwork, and they've got all this weird painting all over the walls. Like one guy's got graffiti, one guy's got all the other weird stuff in it. I just love the way you say booths. Booth. Booths. <laughs> booths. <laughs> I feel like with my lisp, I can't booth the way you booth. <laughs> it's an acquired skill. Um, but we, I was just thinking of this app that I just downloaded that uses Google's Deep Dream technology. Oh, yes. To take a photo that you've already taken and then take a texture that you could either choose from one of the pre-existing ones that they have on their website or you can actually take another photo and use that as a texture and it somehow maps the texture to the original photo using Google's deep dream technology okay okay with exaflops of information with every second hexaflops he- exaflops Hexaflops. which I think is like more than a quadraflop or a tetraflop it's not the flop you were dating before the flop no, you were dating that long gone yeah okay. she's right. flopped to the side yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure who you're referring to, but there's been a few flops in the past <laughs> six months or so. Well, so. if they're X's by nature, they probably are flops. Good point. Good point. Yeah, they, they're they not super flops. They're <laughs> X flops. As long as you didn't flop, 
I didn't flop. I was very unfloppy. You were not responsible for the, the <laughs> flopping, the flip-flopping and flop-hopping. So yeah. I guess, I, I mean, I have to say that we're not being sponsored by this app, but it's really cool. It's called Picazo, P-I-K-A-Z-O. And yeah, it's really cool. Like the, the textures you can take of like a peeling wall, uh, like a paint peeling off a wall or... I took one of grass, one of trees. You can take anything that you, you can take. Yeah, uh, you can take anything. You can take two faces. So <laughs> we can take, and maybe we can post this on the website. We can take we uh, the, the faces of people in the studio and match them the together. Combinations of using the space life team, deep dream technology. But uh, yeah, weird stuff happens. You, you see eyeballs appear, and a deep dream uh, becomes deep nightmare technology very quickly. Very quickly. You all of a sudden have a receding hairline for some reason. Like yeah. I had a quite a serious receding hairline all of a sudden. Well, I gotta say, Al, when, when combining your face with anybody is just disaster. <laughs> what do you mean? I've got a stronger genes. You've you know? got you've got the Mickey Rock effect. No I matter who, <laughs> no Rourke. matter who, <laughs> no matter who you combine your face with, it results in some form of Mickey Rock. Well, I'm a semi-pro boxer. Watch yourself. But it's the Mickey Rock effect in the wrong direction, which is going towards the boxer, not going from the boxer back towards the young, good-looking Mickey Rock. We're not talking 80s Mickey. We're talking, we're talking nasty-ass. The bad guy from the Jean Claude Van Damme movies. So, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll post Mickey. one of these photos on, but it's, you know... That looks great. That's beautiful. It's a peeling paint door with someone's face, and it somehow matches them up perfectly. It it's, actually looks like art. Yeah. Starfields. We should do Starfields, because that's appropriate. We'll do Starfields, and then we'll tweet them. Yeah. You know what we should try and do? We should try and combine two dogs' faces. Okay. But <laughs> Where could we find two dogs? Oh, I don't, oh, I don't know. Where? Where? Two dogs. Yeah, right now. Two vaguely similar-looking dogs. <laughs> Put them together. Uh, uh, nice. Okay. Uh, Al. I've got a question uh, on that last topic. Um, how do you know when a computer has made art? Oh. Like... Like, does the computer have to have had that intention? Is it art if it's never, if it was never intended to be art? Well, this is. Uh, oh, maybe I, we're getting too deep for. No, I think, no, no, I no, feel no, like I had enough. this, I I had this conversation with an artist about how they taught uh, an algorithm, like Deep Dream, but an algorithm to recreate the style of painters, and so it had churned out something like a hundred thousand artworks within the space of a few seconds. Yeah, it's it's sort of creativity, but, but I think it's, it's I think you have to ask something. you have to ask what is art, right? I guess that is the question. Yeah, Does art have to come from a person? Does it have to be? Is it form? Is it function? Is it intention? I think I'm gonna go with that. It's intention. So I'll say that a that a computer can't make art unless its plan is to make art. In which case, maybe it can. Yeah, I mean, if a computer's been if a algorithm if a, if a program has been written with the intention of making art can you not argue that the program is intending to make art in the same way that you could argue that we're programmed you know you could go that free will versus uh, you know whatever the, I think the, we have the to term at, is we have to look at that algorithm because it might just say this is how to paint yeah but our creative algorithm might just be this is how to paint Whatever it is inside the firing mess of neurons inside our brains, the electrical impulses might just be an algorithm that says this is how you create. Wasn't that wasn't there a movie called Exit Through the Gift Shop? Yeah. That talked about all of this. The Banksy vibe and what is art, that mass-produced factory that the guy was just churning artworks out. Well, it's interesting. We're saying this while we're at an exhibition that's full of art forms and different. So there is a tapestry artist, there is a jewelry designer, there's a street artist, there's an origami artist, and there's a fine artist painter, and, and then there there's us who artistically, <laughs> artistically talk about science on the uh, Space radio. artists. Space yeah. artists. Yeah. Space graffiti. 
It but is. also, like, uh, I mean, I'm going back to my freshman year of college art history class, but Dadaism, wasn't that the whole vibe with Dadaism? Like Marsh, Marcel Duchamp, I think he took a toilet and he put it in an exhibition space in Paris and he said, this is now art. Because my intention is that this is art. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, it doesn't really matter what the object is, it's the intention of the observer what to about, turn it into art. What about unintentional art, finding art where there was no intention? I mean, I that's my favorite kind of art. What, what do you mean? Like, like, give an example. Oh, like just Andy like, Warhol or something. No, no, just like somebody left the cutlery on their plate oh. and, it, and it looked good. I walked past, I noticed it, took a photo. But then you are creating the art by taking the photo, so the intention is yours. Okay, what if I don't take the photo, if I just observe it? Then oh. it's just art in your reality, where your intention is to see it as art. You're just hallucinating art, is what you're doing there. You're, just, you're creating art for yourself and yourself alone, which is pretty cool. In its, that, that, that's probably an art form in itself. Maybe as we get more close to computers and people start implanting themselves with chips and GPUs, like, we won't even really... Well, like, we need a, a new word to describe art. Because it won't necessarily be what we think should be art anymore. It should be, like... It's some sort of program that they've written, right? We're this also, is, like, what it should look like. We're also... I mean, I think we're discrediting when we, when we, when we remove intention. Well, we assume that computers and cutlery can't intend to... Be, be artful you know we learned last season on the show that everything has a mind and a soul whether it be a rock a tree a dog or a fork or spoon so it's well within reason that the fork and spoon were actually performing and you happen to catch it as, as, a, as an elegant piece of performance art so let's not let's that, not discount that that's a deep dream that's, that is a deep <laughs> that okay. is a deep dream so we're going to put people's faces together with forks and spoons and dogs Woo! sounds amazing check them out and check them out on the Facebook and our brand new website spacelifeandotherdumbideas.com which has just been launched uh, to coincide with this with this uh, event Al what are you what are you rounding up um, I came across this really cool project uh, on Indiegogo uh, guys are you trying to obviously fund it through source funding or crowdsourcing um, and it's, have you ever heard of the Sieben project Sieben yeah it's like basically like a giant creepy crawly uh, or you know big vacuum cleaner that sits at the end of marinas like so you have the corner of a marina and it's uh, like a room flow pool so the, the water slowly seeps in and it pools all the rubbish that are floating on the top and it filters so the water comes back through at the bottom and it picks up cans and packets and that sort of thing and it puts it into a bag and then you just scoop the bag out and then you've got one load of rubbish and the sea's clear so you don't have to go find the rubbish it comes to you <laughs> I mean that's like the laziness <laughs> <laughs> is that what the Indiegogo campaign says at the end and boom the sea is clear yeah, exactly and done <laughs> oil everything is fine no but it's uh, pretty interesting because obviously there's a, a big problem with floating debris um, and it's you know it goes every which direction but if you have start with marinas and you start working your way out going everywhere every which everywhere. direction debris it's just out of control <laughs> Depending on the currents. What, well, isn't there that one guy who's trying to clean up that big garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean? The teenager. Yes. Using, yeah, the teenager guy using a similar technology. Oh, right? really? So maybe this is him. I don't know. It might be. Um, the Sea Bin Project. You know, funny enough, so my dad is a sailor, and he used to work for NOAA, so National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the States. And he basically was on the oceanic side, and he made maps and sailed around the world. He said that... If you go into those gyres, because there's one in the Pacific Ocean and there's one in the Atlantic, it doesn't really look like a floating garbage patch, necessarily. It kind of looks like a sort of soupy film on the surface, because I guess the plastic breaks down into really, really small balls, like spheres. 
So plastic, as they rub against one another after like millions of waves and other pieces of plastic have rubbed against it, turns into almost like a, a molecule or an atom-looking thing. Like really small. I mean, bigger than an atom, obviously, but it's just sort of like a like plastic oil. soup. Well, I mean, it's like it's disgusting, and it gets into like fishes. I don't know, reproductive gills system, stuff, gills, yeah. digestive systems. It's like super toxic stuff, but it's not a massive floating garbage yeah. patch like I thought it was. How big are these patches? Are they they're kilometers wide? No, I mean the the guy, the kid publicized the one, and it was the size of California. Oh, what? Yeah, because of the way the currents work, it like oh. sucks in everything from Japan, China, America, and South America into. That's or not South America, ridiculous. I guess. It'd be north of the equator, but everywhere like north of the equator, suck gets sucked into one ball, and south of the equator, there's another ball. Well, that's kind of handy. What? Getting sucked into a ball. You only, you only need to clean up two places. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good point. Yeah, that is a good point. That is a good point. That's intention. Yeah. yeah. The planet's doing its part. The mm. planet's coming to the party when it comes mm-hmm. to ending global warming. So, I mean, if you had to have uh, an ozone layer issue above that, you know, it'll burn it up a lot easier. So you just need to damage the Earth more, put more yeah. more ozone yeah, yeah. holes, and then it'll burn what's flooding on the surface. Did, is anyone good, on man. this? Did, did anyone say that at Paris? The cop, I'm going to send them an email. COP21? Yeah. yeah. I just, yeah. I think it's good the planet's not just free freeloading of the hard work of humankind anymore. Yeah. It's actually stepping up and coming to the party and getting involved. Well, I mean, nature needs to, you know, pull its weight, you know? We can't just clean up after nature all the time. Nature must... No. It's, yeah, like, totally. it's like when you when you sweep up, you sweep everything into, like, little piles, and then you have to go, like, with the other little room and sweep those piles up. It's like making the piles. Yeah. We have to... It's a lot, it's a lot like me, because I often get to the point where I've made piles and I just don't feel like cleaning anymore. You just kind of leave it there. But at least it's in a central spot. Well, so, I'm, you know, you walk around it. Put the whole it. pile on your bed until bedtime and then put the whole pile on the floor. I'm looking at this nice, clean parking lot all around us. And to be honest, this is probably just dirt and grass, like filthy before this parking lot was here. So, yeah. I mean, finally, we're, we're starting to clean this place up. Yeah, we Earth. sure are. We're cleaning this town up. Exactly. <laughs> we're starting to order this place. Parking lot by parking lot. Isn't there a song like that? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I'm still reeling from you starting talking about your piles, Alec. I haven't recovered. <laughs> my, my, pile, my piles are rubbish. I my piles. Okay, on a related note, I have to go on a tangent here. I was just in Uganda, and I crossed the equator. Right? Has anyone here crossed the equator by land? No. No. Someone has. Have you, Sean? Um, by land. Oh, wait, no, that was Capricorn. No, I don't, I don't think I have crossed the equator. But you land. have, Al. No, I was Capricorn. I got confused. Are you guys serious? None of you? I'm not sure. Wow. I don't think so, though. Oh, gosh. I guess, as an American, I just expected every African to have, like, taken some trek at some point crossing well, the equator. Well, you know, that, that equator's a long <laughs> way away, Johnny. <laughs> but they had the, the typical setup, which I was expecting, which is two uh, basins filled with water. And they took the plug out of one basin and it flowed counterclockwise and the other basin was pulled and it flowed clockwise. No, that's no, it. No, 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 that's, I, that's, that's what everyone has said and that's what I thought and I was, I'm a smart person and I Google. Anyways, I went there and I've got this on video. I have it on video. They flowed in different directions. And what, everyone... Like one side over there, like everyone, a meter that way and a meter this way. Look, all I'm saying is watch the video because everyone that I've told this to is like, no, it's bullshit. Well, I... I he must have given it a little bit of a push or something. I didn't Even flush a toilet in Alaska. Goes the same way as it does here. But if, if it's completely still, if the water is completely still... Yeah. It's all to do I with mean, bowl design. I mean, there's floating things in the toilet when you flush it, but it's I mean... It's all to do with the subtle, like... It, it looked like the same bowl. I don't know. Guys. Can we post that video? I, I would love to post a video, yeah. Post a video Just on to get more people, yeah. Like, crowdsourcing this, this happening. Because it does exist, right? The phenomenon is called the Coriolis effect. And it does exist. That's why typhoons spin a different direction than 
hurricanes. So like south of the equator, things spin counterclockwise and north, so they spin clockwise or one or the other. But I didn't think it worked in really small basins of water, but... And in such, I mean, there's there's no there's no gray area there. There's how far, how no, far no, there are was. we talking? How far there are we talking away? What had a basin. It's exactly on the line. It doesn't. You flush and nothing happens. It went just, straight down. Went straight down. It no, went it didn't. straight down. It, it did. I, I swear, it's on the video, Sean. <laughs> it's on the video. Oh, and you believe every they video? They probably that you... have like specially designed little basins. I don't know because he took the video. He took the basin off and moved it from place to place. So it was the same basin. I don't know. I, yeah, you know, and then he was like, put down another hundred and I'll show you something really cool. I've seen this trick. You know, where's the ball? Like, One, two, three, it was where's actually, the ball? It was actually 10,000 shilling. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was a little bit more than that. But, yeah. I'll post the video. We'll post the video on Facebook. Okay. You be the judge. I'll believe it when I see it. I've got something for you guys. You know, they've been growing roses that have circuitry embedded in them. The story is from a, from a, a little while, a couple of weeks ago. But they are... Um, I think the point is that they can change colors of the leaves. So they grow them with the stems in a sort of uh, siliconate, electronic sort of fluid. And as the rose draws the material in, it actually circuits the same way it would form capillaries or, or whatever inside the leaves and the petals of the flower. It actually forms with circuitry, which means that they're true cyborg plants that that they're that they're creating at the massachusetts institute of technology in cambridge um, they've done it with spinach as well to boost the rate of photosynthesis in plants and and up the rate at which they uh, absorb light and all of that but this is it's, it's pretty still crazy edible cool. like normal plants yeah they look like normal plants i think do you eat roses it's i have if you can marry if you can marry that up with the venus flytrap we're all in trouble i think yeah. robo robo trap mm. well, like we don't need anything else with teeth i think the world is filled with things that have teeth at this point we don't need to create any more well so it, the the, the long term effect is they want to turn plants into living fuel cells uh, through the plants i guess a plant with circuitry and it can draw electricity right out of the plant and back into the system with a grid or something like that um no, but that's it's, that's it's, awesome. It's pretty actually. exciting. It's a. I'd known that they'd done something with, um, like for example, if you take a plant and you put it into water and then you add UV reflective light into that water, and the plant then sucks it up, you can have a, a glowing black light plant. Oh yeah, yeah. And you yeah. can sort of see the capillaries and the veins in the plant that way too. So. That's completely unrelated to what you're saying. No, but, but I remember but it was a pretty sort of cool picture that I saw. It'd be amazing if you could grow plants that were lights. So you grow a plant, you could actually flick a switch, and the plant would mm. come to light. I mean, oh my god, it'd be like plankton. It'd be like uh, bioluminescent fluorescent plankton or, or yeah. like iridescent. Um, god, that'd be so cool. Suddenly the pressure's on. If you want to give a flower, you got to give a nano flower. <laughs> it's a lot easier just getting Christmas lights or something and tying them around a vine. It's a lot, lot less effort. Lot it is cheaper. a lot. Of, I just get a, a nano plant gift card, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot less effort. Exactly. You can just buy it online. And you can choose what you want. You might not want that plant with mm -mm. the nano things. Edible and biodegradable electronic materials. I mean, it's amazing. Imagine eating a, a, a salad that was a glowing salad. You could have like a neon. It, you, it would, you would go to one of those uh, in-the-dark restaurants and they would bring the food out and the food would be the only thing providing light. It was just glowing. Like, what do you mean one of those in-the-dark restaurants? You know those <laughs> in-the-dark restaurants where you go in the dark and you eat in the dark? You ever been to one of those in-the-dark restaurants? Our kitchen no. sometimes. Yeah, yeah, when the power's down, yeah. <laughs> No, seriously, you go in, they're like blind restaurants. So you go in and say they, they black it out so it's super, super dark. And a lot of the time they have blind waiters and waitresses because they've 
you know know how to work with the space and you can't see anything and you don't know who you're sitting with you're just at a table with a bunch of people uh, you sort of make that it's not actually awkward conversation because you could be talking to anybody and nobody at the same time so you and you also don't know what you're eating and it's amazing how hard it is to eat soup if you can't see what you're doing it's almost like as a joke they bring out the soup and, and uh, as a first course and I, you, I can't tell if you're bullshitting or not no like, I'm not no, this is genuinely true <laughs> what, is there one in Cape Town I, I, they, they did do one in Cape Town really yeah they've done this in the past in Cape Town a yeah. dark restaurant served dark by blind waiters yeah That's dark, so like blind blind dining it's a yeah. thing right, I mean, it's, it's, it's a real thing I mean, do they stick to salads and that sort of thing just to make it easier for you? Because, I mean, you know, soup, hot soup in the dark. Hot soup. Yeah, it's it's Burn really yourself. hard. You you would imagine. Oh, I've got. To, I know how to put my hand to my mouth with soup in a in a in a spoon. It's incredible. Just trying to do it with your mouth, with your with your eyes closed, and try and feed yourself. Maybe that's even that's easy because you know you know your eyes are closed. But you, there's this whole disorienting effect that happens when you're in the dark and you feel like you should be able to see but you can't. I suppose like you don't even really know how long your spoon is. You you don't know anything. Yeah, you haven't seen the spoon, so you don't know how long it is. You don't know how big the bowl is. You don't even know what flavor it is. You know. And it's probably a really fine motor skill to keep a, a soup perfectly level on a yeah. spoon as you yeah. bring it to your mouth, yeah. right? Yeah. Man, the chopsticks. That'll be sort of. A difficult yeah, one. you would you would not find your mouth. So there'd be chopstick injuries. As a, as a joke, you would just you know give people chopsticks and bowl of soup. See, <laughs> good luck, guys. Enjoy your meal. <laughs> no, but you don't tell them is that they're the hollow, so they're a straw, and it's only the the thinker the thinkers out of the boxes who will realize that they. Um, That's a good idea. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> well, anyway, glowing glowing flowers, glowing salads. Amazing. It's a thing. Should Amazing. be a thing. Yeah. Um, I've got some space-related news. Oh. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw uh, that Blue Origin space shuttle yep. or space rocket landing. Yeah. It's like the first yeah. time a rocket has ever actually landed. I just thought that was pretty amazing because, because you know, SpaceX has been trying to land their rocket on a barge for a while. Yeah. Not having any luck. And then here, these guys come kind of out of nowhere. We're just getting it like 100% right the first time. It was, it cool was Google, way. right? It was Blue Origin, which is a company started by the CEO of uh, Amazon. Of Amazon. So I think his name is Jeff. Jeff, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, yeah. yeah something like that. Uh, but then the actual video, it's insane because... The way it lands looks like something out of a science fiction movie, and you'd you'd be like forgiven for thinking that it's just like a tiny little thing. But then you go like see when they go right up to it again, and it's like it's like 50 feet tall, That's this amazing. giant thing, just like controlling itself down. Not not to take what, uh, away from what SpaceX is doing. Um, I mean, we are talking about a lot smaller, a lot smaller rocket. Like SpaceX is quite. I mean, they're doing serious payloads. This is more of a of a uh, you know ex- low orbit. Yeah, um, I mean they can rock. get you to space, but they can't get like all the like building materials yeah. for the yeah. space station. Yeah. I mean, not well. to poo-poo their landmark achievement, but it's just not quite on the scale of what the other people are trying to do. No, it's the, not. The, the technology yeah. required to help keep that thing falling so stably and to like, it kind of blows my mind. But it's amazing that they just that. came out of nowhere. Yeah, and I don't know if anybody even knew that they were working on it. Yeah, I mean, I've never even seen a small thing land like that, let alone a giant I heard rocket. it was a blind guy who was a lead engineer. Yeah. Seriously. And he has a, he has a side project, blind, blind restaurants. Even more. In darkness. But why are they trying to land it vertically? Um, because it makes sense. So you can reuse because it. Because the, the, the thrusters are but on the you bottom, can reuse so that's the space where you're going to get the... Why don't they just put wheels on the side of it? and well, then no, just space shuttles, a space shuttle ejects the rockets. The rockets stay up in space and they fall down into the ocean like years later. Whereas this thing, the actual rocket itself, 
can come back and land so they can reuse that instead of building a new one every single time. Okay. And it's also a bit of a who's going to be first to do it. It's yeah. a new technology. I think that's a big part of it too. Um, I had something I was going to say about this, but I can't think. I know that uh, um, uh, Virgin uh, have announced they're doing that uh, with their 747 that they've had for many years. I can't remember the name of it now. Um, but the, the, they're obviously going to bring it now with, with the, their failed... Um, what's that? Their, their spaceship called? Their failed... Uh, uh, Galact- uh, Virgin Galactic. Um, that, that, that aircraft that they had was... Which obviously crashed um, they now looking at alternatives um, still you know they're re- rebuilding another one but in in the interim they've uh, they've bought the 747 that they've used for their their ex- uh, VIPs and that sort of thing they're going to use now as a as a uh, transporter to transport the, the galactic um, the plan is just to speed it up so they don't have they can on its own uh, it can be launched on its uh, with its own essentially floating launch pad with the 747 okay um, and now they've sort of sped that up uh, that process up so now hopefully they're going to be doing uh, you know more more flights I'm still waiting on the space elevator yeah but I read an article some new discovery in material mm. is uh, is a step closer to space elevator I wish I could remember yeah, what it's it was that, it's, right. a, it's a new form of carbon which right. is yeah. harder than diamond and they can make like really really strong like strands well yeah. that's the thing because I can remember in high school physics doing an experiment why the space elevator wouldn't work like, it was some calculation that you had to get to, and it was like, well, it would just basically weigh too much. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think the best strategy would to be to have the space elevator suspended from orbit as opposed to building a giant tower. Sure, yeah. And then you've got all the cables and stuff that the elevator would use. If those are too heavy, like, it's never going to stay in orbit. Because there's no way it could be a fixed, a fixed structure. No way. Not a solid. I mean, it, it would, I mean, with the movement of the Earth, it would have to be so strong to withstand the, the momentum of whatever the rate that the Earth spins at Space is. Space is just way too high up. Like, you, know, you yeah. can't even build a structure that gets even halfway to space. It's so, so high. Yeah. But hold on. Like, why? The space is like 80 kilometers up. I know, but you can make an 80 kilometer long, like, train track. Yeah, but imagine them putting it straight up in the air. You know, it's like playing Jenga or, or whatever, where you've got one suspended thing. Imagine putting a toothpick <laughs> on a soccer ball. <laughs> Not even a toothpick. Imagine putting, like, a, I don't know, something very, very thin on a ball and just spinning it, and what's going to happen to that? Well, I, yeah, I don't know enough about it, I guess. I thought the main consideration was how like uh, strong it had to be because it would be so much weight on top of it. Like 80 kilometers would mean the bottom of it would have to be super strong to support all that weight. But then you think like at some point it leaves the Earth's gravity, right? So then it doesn't weigh anything anymore. Well, that's how it stays up. What do you mean that's how it stays up? Well, that's how the space elevator stays hanging from space because the station that's orbiting the Earth is not being pulled to Earth, it's in orbit. So everything is just hanging from that. No, but this just sounds so risky because no matter how weightless it is at the top, the Earth is going to turn. If it's just sort of hanging there, it's eventually the cord's going to catch and be pulled. No, and it will as be it's in like pulled, a geostationary it'll get lower, 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 orbit. Lower, lower, and eventually wrap around and... Well, you are right that eventually over time it will get lower and lower, lower, lower. But then I guess they just have to... They can put little thrusters on there to adjust its oh, little, Of course, little thrusters. Cute little thrusters. <laughs> Even thrusteritos. Uh, color them pink. Yeah. Cute little things. But I think, uh, isn't that... You're thinking of like air resistance as pushing back on it, I think. 
Well, like yeah. if you were to take a string and wave it around your head, it would eventually like there would be a little bit of drag from the friction but, of the air. But there would be 20, 30, 40 kilometers worth of air resistance before it broke out of the atmosphere. I mean, I've, I think I the best know. way to picture it is like dropping an anchor on a, on a boat and you've got strong currents. Your anchor is on a set point of the ground and your boat is floating on the top. And then you're going to have the resistance in between with the current and whales and whatever else coming through there knocking. Yeah. Um, so if you, if you view it like that, but I mean, we are talking about some serious... But air is so thin, even just yeah. seven or eight kilometers above us. I yeah. think the, it would sort of be irrelevant, the friction from the air. Well, I mean, you get pockets, you know, obviously you've got different pockets of wind. Uh, it's different, like... Space wind? Space wind, no. Like I mean, Coriolis in, force as well? Yeah, in our atmosphere. Um, what about the migratory parts of uh, of swallows, swallows, yeah. swallows and other form, other birds, Af- other long African swallow birds? or oh, all the swallows? Oh, okay, all the swallows. I heard that um, while they were trying to make this, some really strong carbon, they made perfect diamonds. Oh, really? This is what I heard. Lab-made diamonds. Lab-made diamonds. Beautifully perfect lab-made diamonds by accident. Would you rather have a lab-made diamond or a lab-made hamburger? With that fake meat, that fake, fake hamburger lab meat. Um, have wait. you seen those YouTube ads? Would they I... come up on YouTube now before videos where the guy's like expounding the virtues of his false meat. It's higher in everything, apparently. Really? Would, would yeah. this be like a recurring hamburger or would I just get it once? Uh, no, you could have a, you could have a recurring, you could, <laughs> you could have a recurring burger. You could have a, you could have a, a lab made hamburger every day for a year or you could have a, a, a lab made diamond. Okay, and would I have to have the lab-made hamburger every day? <laughs> I feel like you're complicating this. No, yes, you have to have you, oh, you have shit. to you have to have a lab-made burger, or you could give it to a friend. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm copying out there. Would you rather have one lab-made burger for a day, or get to wear a lab-made diamond for a day? Uh, yeah, no, lab lab hamburger. <laughs> yeah. Kind of depends if you had somewhere to go, I guess. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not that into diamonds. Yeah. Or would you have a hamburger ring? So you ha- instead of the diamond, you have a hamburger because I mean they're obviously the same on the sort ring. Of thing. Yeah, yeah, on the ring, and you eat the ring. Or you get the diamond, but you have to wear it on your body between two sesame seed buns. Yeah, <laughs> between between your own sesame street <laughs> sesame street buns. <laughs> <laughs> But it's I don't know, it's a good which which uh, if you go by um, no this doesn't make I was gonna say if you go by 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 uh, weight by gram value which is more valuable lab grown meat or lab grown diamonds but it's probably it's probably diamonds what, what's the difference <laughs> yeah. between a lab made diamond and uh, what's the cubic zir- cubic zirconium cubic zirconia is that what a lab made diamond is I think this one's uh, one step up from that oh it's one step up okay. Uh, what's the difference, Jesus? I mean, you know what I, I mean? mean. Like, what you're wearing a piece of glass, or you're wearing a real diamond, or you're wearing a fake diamond on your finger? It's so arbitrary, isn't it? What's the point of diamonds anyway? I mean, diamonds have—I mean, they're not that valuable. You know, the, no, the story behind that was that it was just a really fancy marketing campaign, and um, who was it? De Beers, De Beers. De Beers. Yeah. just like held back, held back the diamonds, and had a fancy marketing campaign and oh, really? pr- promoted people to buy them as engagement rings yeah. and prices skyrocketed. They, well, they, they, they came up with a campaign that, uh, what is it? It's worth two months of your salary. 
So the campaign in the 1940s, because Americans specifically didn't uh, buy engagement rings before the 1940s, or they had a different type of engagement ring. It was like a band, a simple band. And then De Beers decided to promote the diamond because they had flagging diamond sales for their industrial uses up to that point. I think it was after World War II. So they, they had like a flagging industrial sector. Until this point. Well, not purely functional, but to the most part. Yeah. And like they weren't cutting them into gems specifically for the American, I guess, wedding market yet. And then this really smart guy on Madison Avenue in New York came up with the idea that, uh, well, a diamond is forever. That was the marketing slogan uh-huh. that he coined. But then he also coined the, the technique or the concept that it was worth two months of your salary. So, like, this idea that a diamond ring should cost two months of your salary was invented by De Beers, which is obviously, like, a certain size diamond, right? Yeah. It's yeah. actually brilliant. Like, I think we should do that for space life. Well, get diamonds. Each should, podcast yeah. is worth about two hours of salary. I think <laughs> we should hours. start selling them. Two hours of salary if you're a freelancer working on spec. <laughs> but also, you know that no publicity is bad publicity rule. Blood diamonds are amazing publicity for diamonds. The fact that there's mm. a whole industry that's grown up around illegal diamond trade just, you know, ups the value and draws attention to the fact that these things are, are, are worth a lot. Uh, by the way, if you if you are here and listening in on the wireless headphones around the space, uh, you can you can adjust the frequency on your headphones to uh, to listen to us here or listen to us on a partial. And also, feel free to jump in if you have a question or a comment for the for the group, because because uh, we're public spacing, which means everybody gets to be part. Of it. Everybody gets to bring their bad ideas, dumb ideas in. Public space life. That's great. Public space life. Park life. Park. No, public life. space life is a lot better. Lot life. Lot life. Love life. A lot like life. Benny, I've got something for you that I think you'll really enjoy because it's about water bears and tardigrades. Yay. Have you seen that they recently sequenced tardigrade DNA? I heard that and they're the most alien thing that exists that exists on the planet. On this planet. They have something like 17%, 17.5% of their genes come from foreign species and they have the ability to shapeshift. To shapeshift but to uh, what's uh, subsume or, or, or assume or uh, absorb the DNA of other things it just just by immersing themselves in that world they there's the they have dna from bacteria from plants fungi um and that's what's allowed the water bed to survive in extreme conditions because for people who don't know they are microscopic little weird looking six-legged Eight-legged? Eight-legged bear-type things with suction faces that can live in space and they can freeze and they can dry and they're virtually indestructible. They can go without food or water for years and all kinds of things. They're basically the pinnacle of evolution. And they, they can live in space. Yeah. They can live in space. Yeah, yeah they, they, are the, they are space life. Tardigrades are space life personified. We should get a tardigrade... Uh, mascot. Oh, it's probably like a million in the studio right now. Probably. Is, is, are the tardigrades, were they named after the, those, ba- well, those characters from uh, Doctor Who? No, you're thinking of... I have no idea what you're thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. i got a wild loose. Do you guys remember uh, sea monkeys? Those little sea monkeys you got in a packet. And then they, they were basically yeah. like little dry things. You pour them in water and they grew and they became little creatures. Yeah, yeah. Were those... Were those tardigrades? No, those were uh, brine shrimp. Okay. Oh, yeah. they were just little shrimp. Because pet, pet tardigrades would be amazing. Mm, mm, little tardigrades so much farm. Fun. Yeah. And so you just have to fun. just check up on it through a, tele, uh, through a microscope. But I don't, so I don't know about in South Africa, but in America, I read a lot of comic books. And in the back of the comic books, you would always have this 
sort of yeah, this yeah, yeah. <laughs> the underwater kingdom. It was almost a tableau. <laughs> and I remember the main sea monkey had a big pot belly and a gold crown and his queen next to him. <laughs> and he had a he literally had a trident. And he had like the peasants working in the fields behind him. Yeah. They were swimming around. Some of them were happy. Some were toiling. But sea monkey class system was brutal. It was. It was, it was really brutal. oppressive. It was and perpetuated by comic books in the 80s and 90s too. <laughs> I, I did get sea monkeys at one point. Yeah, me too. And, I, and they swam around, and it was it was brutal. That was the days before the internet, when you were fascinated by brine shrimp in a, <laughs> in a dirty little plastic container. Uh, so tardigrades, they can, they can dehydrate until their body is less than 3% water. And it's in the process of rehydrating that they assume uh, DNA from other... Um, from other creatures because there's a time where the cell nucleus is leaky which means the DNA and other materials can actually pass through it and it can grab, like cherry pick the things that it likes Uh, so I would say give them another couple of hundred thousand million years and the tardigrade is going to become the ultimate it's it's already the ultimate being but it's on the road to becoming the the most indestructible kind of hardcore creature that, that, that exists. So they trump cockroaches, because obviously cockroaches, you can, after nuclear war, they're the, one of the few creatures that would survive? No, 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 tardigrades would survive. The tardigrade would win. Tardigrades. Okay. Cockroach, co- t- cockroaches live, no, tardigrades live on cockroaches. Oh, okay. That's great. That's a fact. Is that a fact? That's a fact. That's a space fact. That's a fact I just dished up. <laughs> From your brain. If it's in your brain, it doesn't mean it's a fact, Sean. Yeah. They also just found a new water bear species in Antarctica. So of tardigrade. Know, of tardigrade, yeah. W- of tardigrade. Water bears. Water bears are tardigrades. Polar bears. Oh, okay. No, I was going to say because I mean, polar bears, are yeah. they related to, to polar bears? Yeah, they're the size of polar bears. Okay, yeah. that's pretty awesome. They should send those into space. There's a lot of polar bears in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> loads. Oh yeah. <laughs> I've never yes. heard the word tardigrade so many times in one conversation. It's a good word. It is. It's fun. It's like that documentary about uh, the golden compass where that girl went to go live in Antarctica with that race of intelligent polar bears and then there was the fight. And Oh, yeah, and I, remember that. I remember that. Um, yeah, they wrote a book about it. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. There was a, a non-fiction book about, based on the documentary. Uh, golden compass. You must, you must check it out. Oh, I'm thinking of the golden boy with Eddie Murphy. That's totally different. <laughs> That's when Eddie Murphy fosters a child and he becomes a karate master. I think I... Uh, one of his lesser-known films. That was before <laughs> the I think Nutty I missed Professor. that one. Yeah. Still live, still at, uh, celebrating creative spirit with Converse here in uh, Heritage Square and Bree Street, uh, which explains the music in the background. It's not a new direction for the show. It's Well, maybe it is. Maybe it is from this point on. Um, it's not a one direction for the show either. No, it's, it's not. It's just a bad pun. <laughs> uh, in the in the pod, not the studio, in the pod right now is Gareth Kemp, postdoc fellow at uh, UJ, University of Johannesburg, researching string theory. Welcome to the show. Uh, good to have you with us. Um, Mike is joining us as a special guest here. It's nice to have you here as well. Johnny Lindley and Julian are here as well. Um, and you can actually just push the power button, Gary, and you should be able to hear yourself. So tell us uh, an intervention. Producer Dan with the intervention. Uh, welcome to the show. So tell, tell us a little bit. So, I mean, you, you, you sent you. through. String theory is a, 
it's an interesting contested field and uh, and it's also not uh, immediately accessible I think so uh, I, I've looked through some of the stuff you sent through before and I think the best approach is that uh, Bindi you explain string theory <laughs> okay well uh, I don't know what string theory is no, but no one does no one Trust does me, no there one we does. go not even Gareth but from what I remember our first conversation Gareth I met you and you told me something along the lines of you were trying to figure out the fabric of the universe <laughs> something like that and um, you were doing fancy equations and getting um, numbers that were equal to infinity where they should have been really 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 small numbers okay so that, that, <laughs> that's a really good um, that's a really good description um, I mean, look, so very much uh, in terms of a big picture, we're really trying to understand uh, the universe in its state of being very shortly after the Big Bang. Um, so in this kind of context, we definitely think that string theory is required. So, so, so first of all, let's maybe go back to the... What is, what is string theory's okay, starting that, that, point? That's a good question. Um, so string theory begins with the fundamental assumption that all of these particles that we speak about, electrons and quarks, all these fancy particles, um, are not really particles at all. They're not little points. So string theory assumes that if you could zoom in close enough onto these particles, you'll see them not as points, but actually as tiny vibrating strings. And the idea is, is that depending on how a string vibrates, we will see this as a different particle. So if the string vibrates in one way, it'll show up as an electron. This is what we'll see. If it vibrates in a slightly different way, we'll see it as a different kind of particle. And um, this has tremendous benefits um, in terms of the very fundamental goals that fundamental physics has in the last few years, namely trying to unify the physics of the very small, so this is like quantum kind of physics, and the physics of the very large, so this is gravity and physics of the planets, that sort of thing. So string theory really attempts to unify these two approaches. So is it that every particle is a string or is that every particle is a point on a string? Every particle is a string, all right? Every particle is a string. Um, and I mean, of course, this, this, this introduces a whole bunch of I mean, so you, you, you essentially need new techniques to study these strings. So you're not studying, you're not studying points anymore, you're studying strings. And um, in a very non-trivial way, making this leap, making this new idea, this, this, this new conceptual idea, um, allows you to do amazing new physics. Physics that we couldn't do previously. Okay. Um, are, all, are, are they all the same kind of string? So we believe so. We believe that there's only one kind of string. And it like dances in different ways. Exactly. So, so, I mean, for, so the analogy that's often used is that if you get a guitar, right, and you pluck a string, if you pluck a string a one way, it'll show up as one musical note. If you pluck it a different way, maybe it'll come up as a different note. Um, and so that's, that's the analogy that's often used. And the same is true in string theory. If you've got one string, and depending on how it vibrates or oscillates, it'll show up as a different particle. And um, how, what's, what, how do they exist in relation to each other? Are they side by side, intertwined, okay. curled in balls? Okay, okay. So, now, so, we, now we're talking about interesting dimensions beyond the typical uh, four dimensions. Um, so we believe strings come in two different types. 
So firstly, that could be open strings. Um, so open strings, you know, if you, if you just undo your shoelace and you just put it on the table, that's an example of an open string. The other is a closed string. So you take the two end points of the string and they're essentially, you join them together like a loop. So those are the two kinds of strings we believe uh, exist. Um, and this has very fundamental uh, implications in terms of explaining things we couldn't before. For example, we know that gravity is a very weak force. It's the weakest force that there is. So there's four fundamental forces and gravity is by far the weakest. All right, and before, before the introduction of string theory, we had no idea why gravity was so weak. But string theory now, it proposes an explanation. It says that the particles that mediate the force of gravity are actually closed strings. So okay. because of this, I mean, the implication of it being a closed string, um, I mean, we can talk about this more, but the implication of being a closed string means that we actually feel very, uh, very few in number of these little closed strings. So for the, for, the, for the open strings, the idea of a string implies that there are two points yes. between which the string exists. What are those points and how does that relate to, would it, would it be a time? Would it okay. be that we're traveling along strings in time? Or? Okay, okay, so now this, this is where it really starts to get science fictional, if you like. So right. people believe that we live on a brain. Okay, so this is short for a membrane. So the thing is, I mean, string theory, it's not just a theory of strings. There are also higher dimensional objects that exist in string theory. So sure, you get a point, you, you still get a point, you get strings, and then you get something like membranes, which is like a two-dimensional object, and then you even get higher dimensional objects still. And we still call these brains or membranes for short. So the idea is that we live in one big brain, all right? One big membrane. And the that particles, the open strings, so, so, so brains are basically places where those endpoints can fix themselves onto, can basically attach themselves. Um, so, you know. Implying that the universe is flat. <laughs> uh, I don't know much. I don't know so much about flat. You, brains can curve. Okay. So brains can have some kind of geometry, uh, some non-flat geometry. Um, uh, when I say flat, I mean two-dimensional. So, be it curved, it's still. I mean, I mean, a brain is still one flat surface. Or you see, okay. Th I mean, this, this, okay. This is very hard for me to imagine, right? Okay. okay. So you get these two-dimensional, these like what you say, these two-dimensional things. But then you can get higher-dimensional brains, brains that exist in three dimensions, in four dimensions, okay, okay. and higher still. Um, I mean, this is, a, this is a really fundamental, this is an amazing prediction of string theory that it says that we don't just have the normal four dimensions. In fact, to get string theory to work, you need 10 dimensions, nine space and one time. Can I ask you a question? So what was the fundamental problem with classical or quantum physics mm -hmm. that couldn't be described with particles? Why did you need to create the idea of the string? Okay. What, what problem were you trying to solve with that? Okay, okay, so before, before, before the discovery of string theory, uh, like I said, we had the theories of the very small, the quantum theories, and these really assume that, you know, the particles are really points in space. So we had quantum theory, we had quantum physics. Then we also had what Einstein did. So Einstein wrote down a theory of general relativity, and this describes gravity. This explains how gravity works, how things interact through gravity, and everything like that. Now the problem is, is that 
just the very concepts, the very fundamental basic ideas of these two theories, quantum physics and gravity, they're incompatible. They're, they don't work. I mean, so, some, so, so, so people say that, uh, you know, the marriage of quantum physics and gravity is doomed. Okay? Okay. It just doesn't work. And this gives rise to certain infinities when we try to do calculations, and there shouldn't be any infinities. So the thing is, the idea is that if you can measure something, it shouldn't be infinite. The problem is, um, we were getting infinities coming out of these calculations, and what string theory does, it effectively solves these problems of infinities. So who, but who first put forward, because how do you observe, if what you're observing could be a particle as, as, as likely as it could be a string, how do you, how do you observe for string theory? How, how do you, how do you, how do you, like um, how do you, how do you see these strings? Yeah, how do you, how do you, um, what's the word I'm looking for? How do you justify string theory to observation? Okay, so, so again, that's a, that's a great question. So there are many physicists who don't believe in string theory. So this is mainly because we have not observed these strings. There's no experimental evidence for string theory. We believe um, on theoretical grounds very strongly that at least string theory is in the right direction because it just unifies quantum physics and gravity in such a way that's so beautiful and so amazing that people have to pay attention. You see, because, I mean, our job as, a, as theoretical physicists, it's not, it's not just to sit in our offices and come up with these wild theories and, you know, if no one can prove us wrong, that's fine because, you know, who cares? It's very difficult to write something down that is consistent with everything we know before. So immediately that constrains whatever you write down, whatever new theory you want to write down. It has to be consistent with quantum mechanics, with quantum physics, and it has to be consistent with relativity. Um, and it's very hard to do that. And string theory does that. Does, does string theory run afoul of Einstein's limitation of the speed of light at all? No, no. So, 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 um, you know, so, so, so before, so before in the very early days of string theory, um, back in the days where we understood it even less than what we do now, um, there came, there, there, there was a certain kind of particle that came naturally out of the theory that actually went faster than light. This was bad, okay? We, we, we don't like these kinds of particles. Um, so we had to introduce another kind of, and something else that, for, so we introduced this, so we introduced something called supersymmetry. All right, we introduced something called supersymmetry uh, for other reasons. Uh, and in addition to solving those other problems we introduced it for, it also got rid of this particle that traveled faster than light. Um, so string theory requires supersymmetry super and it also requires gravity. And this is something before that no other theory could have done. So explain supersymmetry. Okay. Um, so again, um, this might seem like everything's made up and uh, you're just pulling these things out of thin air. But supersymmetry proposes that every particle that we, ex that we see in nature, the electrons, quarks, anything, neutrinos, there is a supersymmetric partner for each one of these particles. So, you know, you, you might have heard the words fermions and bosons. Uh, so these are descriptions. These are names that we assign to two classes. I mean, all of these particles split into two different classes. One, it's either a boson. So you might have heard of the Higgs boson. This made headlines a few years ago. And there's also things called fermions. Now, if a particle that we see now is a boson, for example, we believe that there's a supersymmetric fermionic 
partner. So for every boson in that we see in nature, there's a fermion partner, and for every fermion, there's a boson partner. And are both observable. We haven't seen any supersymmetric particles yet, but we're hoping that for the next round of the experiments at the Large Hadron Collider, we are hoping very strongly that we will begin to see evidence of these supersymmetric particles. And is this quantum entanglement? Is this what this is referring no. to? No. So, so, quant so quantum entanglement is something um, that's also something very interesting. And you can also do entanglement in the context of string theory. But I mean, so entanglement is when you really have two kinds of particles and they become entangled with each other that you really can't distinguish one from the other. Because um, mathematically, there's all kinds of ways that you can separate a two-particle thing into its constituents. If something is entangled, you can't do this. You can't separate one particle from the other. But with the boson particle and its alternative particle, alternative particle, you can separate them or you can at least measure them independently of one another. We should be able to, yes. We should be able to. If, gotcha. if they do exist, we, we should be able to measure them, yes. So what does that imply then? If you have particles that are, I guess, if you have two particles that are part of the same whole, yes. right? Well, you're talking about the boson particle and then its alternative state. What does that imply then? So, this implies that there is no so so it, i mean it solves a whole bunch of problems that were present in string theory so for example this particle that could travel faster than light if you introduce this supersymmetry that goes away and it allows you to talk about strings from a bosonic point of view and from a fermionic point of view because we know in nature there are both bosons and fermions so the, the same should be true with string theory we should be able to see fermionic strings we should be able to see bosonic strings so strings exist in in pairs they can exist in pairs, but so I mean, it's it's like you know, it's it's, it's for example, you could say that the antiparticle of an electron is a positron. So it's just it's it, it so it partners not any like in any not in any kind of spatial way, yes, but okay. it's just you know, it's 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 a related particle. It has similar properties. Um, that we believe that because of these similar properties we say that they're partners of one another. Are we talking about dark matter? So dark matter is an example of a supersymmetric particle. Okay. So some people believe that dark matter is supersymmetry at work. Okay. It's just, it, I, I find it, I, it, it's, the fact that it's not observable must be hugely frustrating because this, this is where the idea of theoretical physics sort of intrigues me. Because up to what point do you uh, expect that you will be able to observe? And at what point is it just going to be theory? And you know now that you will never be able to observe some of the theories that you're putting forward. Sure. So, you know... And I don't mean that in any way as a, as a, <laughs> as a negative question. No, no. So, I mean, so look, there are people in the community amazingly intelligent people say that string theory is not physics. It's just purely mathematics because it's any theory of physics should be experimentally verifiable. You should be able to test it. Um, and at the same time, you get very intelligent people who claim that, you know, argue very strongly that string theory is physics. Um, so, I, so I believe very strongly that it is physics. I mean, we're trying to write down um, a theory of physics. We're trying to explain nature. Um, you know, and this might be similar to people 120 years ago, you know, when Thomson was first studying the electron or, you know, when people were still, we were first just discussing the possibility of the atom. Um, they had very little evidence for these atoms existing, but they believed they had, you know, they had strong hunches that these things were there. 
And um, on theoretical grounds, we believe very strongly that these strings are there as well. Is there a proposed way that it could ever be proven? So, so one of the founding fathers um, of string theory, his name's John Schwartz. He was one quote. He, he was once quoted as saying, "Finding evidence of supersymmetry is more significant than finding life on Mars." Hmm. All right. Um, so some, some people agree with him. Some people don't agree with him. Um, but why this is significant is that it would further enhance the position of string theory because string theory really requires supersymmetry. Um, and just to just to think that there are these amazing partner particles of all these fermions and bosons out there that we you know that we thought to exist and just with our with our minds thought that you know we argued very strongly that these have to exist finding evidence that they actually are there i mean this is a tremendous triumph for you know just how human beings can think well it's also it's a huge exercise in faith you know, and I and I like I like what you're saying about a hunch. Sometimes it's a hunch, and you just have to follow it because you believe it that strongly, and it's faith, really. Ab- absolutely. So, I mean, so so so. I think what's also important is that even though if you believe in a theory, if you have faith in a theory, the second the second things start showing up that disprove the theory, that you know, that lead you in a different direction, you have to abandon that approach and have faith in something new. You have to go where the evidence points, and. Um, that, that's that's the thing. So, are, are there um, like practical considerations and practical designs that are going to come out of string theory, like they came out of quantum theory, for example, like quantum computing? Okay, um, a- absolutely. Okay, okay. So, so great question. Um, so, nothing that I can think of at the moment. All right. Um, so, I mean, we're we're perhaps, I mean, we're many 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 years away from I think um, being able to even come up with ideas how we can test string theory how we can actually observe these strings um, so I think trying to do string theory and trying to find a theory that unifies quantum physics and gravity this is highly important there are places in the universe where we really need to apply these theories where gravity is as important as quantum mecha- as quantum physics um, but in terms of sort of engineering applications I mean I think this is a very long way down very long way down the track and so just thinking in terms of, of particle physics where uh, particles combine to become bigger particles which combine to become atoms, how, what, what is an atom within string theory? Is it a cluster of strings? So, so okay, so, so, you, we, so if we go down to... Let's go all the, the way. Basic, let's let's go, go all go the way. Go down to in. the basic level. So we so we believe that so protons and neutrons. So we so we know that a neut- uh, a nucleus is made up of protons and neutrons. Protons carry a positive charge. Neutrons are basically neutral. They have no charge. Um, so protons and neutrons make up the nucleus, uh, and you get electrons that now orbit the nucleus because the, the nucleus has a net positive charge. Electrons have some kind of negative charge and they sort of circle each other, they go around and together they make up this atom. So if you go now, if you go smaller and smaller to what actually makes up those protons and those neutrons, those are things called quarks. Alright, so the proton and neutron, these are not fundamental particles, they're made up of even smaller things called quarks. And um, we believe that if we could zoom in even more, so you know, if you have if you have if you have an atom, you zoom in, you can see the electron, you can see the nucleus. If you zoom in even more, you can see protons and neutrons. If you zoom if you zoom in even more, you can see the quarks. And if you can zoom in 
even further, an astronomically small amount, these quarks are not really particles, we should be able to see strings vibrating in a way that looks like quarks. What are the strings made up of? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I do not know the answer to this. I, th I, th I think a lot of people will be stumped. How, how long is a piece of string? Are they the same length or... I, I had to do it. <laughs> but, no, but genuinely, are they the same length? Is, it, is, it, is, there, is there a fixed point here and fixed point here and everything is the same length? Or is a string literally a tiny little string and they all... Okay, so, so, so strings are extremely, extremely small. I mean, they have to be. So, I mean, you might ask yourself the question, why don't we see strings in everyday life? The reason is that we believe is that they're incredibly tiny. Um, so you might have heard something called the Planck length. So the Planck length, this is an astronomically small number. It's 10 to the minus, minus 33. Okay, so 10 to the minus 33. So if you put a zero, comma, and then 33 zeros, that's an unbelievably small number. So we believe that is the length scale at which you begin to see these strings. So it's, it's incredibly small. I can't, I can't even wrap my head around it. So let's step back a minute. So you're saying that there's, I'll sum up what I've heard. <laughs> there is an incredibly small string and that's the fundamental building block of everything that we see around us. Ourselves, yes. these yes. radio waves, Absolutely. the earth, the air, everything, right? Yes. And then there's forces that act upon these strings to combine them. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, which are also strings themselves. Everything is a string. So, Every single thing is a string. So those four forces in the universe, so it's what? Weak and strong uh, nuclear force? The, right? weak, the weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force. Magnetic. Absolutely. There's, the elect there's electromagnetism and there's and the gravity. gravity. Yes. Right? So those four forces combine with strings that themselves are not one of those four forces. Yes, Correct? exactly. So the exactly. the string that they're acting upon is something different. Yes. And then and then hold on. So then all of those strings somehow form the intelligence that's going on inside your brain. Absolutely. So I, I guess in a I'm, very non-trivial way, in a what, way that I, no one can explain. What What is your theory on what the intelligence of how the forces form the strings into building blocks? Where does that come from? How do, how do the forces know to build the strings into blocks and into like these forms that then we can sit and talk about said forms? Because God is a weaver. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very a big string strange, basket. isn't it? And I don't know. I mean, what, do you guys talk about that at all? Or is it all like just mathematically proving strings? I mean, so these are very big questions. These are even philosophical questions. So, I mean, what, what someone like myself would do is I try to focus on a very narrow problem in string theory and I try to solve that. So in the end of the day, at the end of the day, I'm not answering these amazing philosophical questions, which I, I, I don't think a lot of people can answer. I think, I mean, maybe some people can, but I don't think so. Um, so, I, I, so I try and focus on, these very, on, on smaller problems, problems that can actually be solved. Um, the one that I think I can solve. What led, um, you, sorry, what, led you, what led you to study string theory? So, another good question. Um, so, I first started out wanting to become an astronomer. So, it boggled my mind that, you know, you could go off into the middle of the desert and take, take pictures of these amazing things and people would pay for this. Um, but the more, as, the more I studied, the more I got interested in more fundamental physics, the more I got interested in mathematics, 
Um, and um, you know, it's it's really it's really the the hot topic in physics at the moment. You know, trying to trying to unify quantum mechanics, gravity. This is you know this is really where it's at. This is where the, the this is where the most excitement is at. Um, you know, just worldwide. But by so so by saying you don't know the answers to some of these philosophical questions, it's implying there are more. There's a lot more to be added to the theory. I, th I think so. So I mean. Just, just on a, just from a physics point of view, we're still trying to work out the structure of string theory. I mean, no one, no one knows how to do string theory. Um, so, I mean, this is very much still work in progress. Um, just, I mean, still, it's still very much work in progress. And um, I think, I think there is progress. I think, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of smart people are working on this. Um, and it's important that people in South Africa also work in string theory. Also, I mean, not just, I mean, physics as a whole, but string theory because it's very interesting. Um, is it a big field in South Africa? It is not as big as the real um, top places, especially in the States like Harvard, Yale, Princeton. It's not quite as big there, but um, it's actually it's a very good group. It's a very good group. I mean, we're attracting people from the States. We're attracting students from Europe. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's healthy. It's healthy. And we've got some really good professors here. Mm. Yeah, so I... Um because in particle physics, we are able to manipulate particles and create atoms and move and observe and experiment. And you, you know, the man is able to step in and move the move the move, oh, yes. move the particles around. Yes. Play with the atoms. So is the is the the end goal that once we've seen and understand strings, we'll be able to you know, weave the strings ourselves, step in and actually be able to pull on strings and unravel strings and maybe tie them in different ways and... So, I think so. So, if we get to a point where we can really fully understand string theory, I don't think there's any limit to what we might be able to do. From an engineering point of view, maybe we could control gravity um, mm. as well as the other forces. Um, I mean, this is a wild, wild speculation. I don't, yeah. know what, I don't know what the final answer is going to look like, but... Um, you know, I think uh, I think we can really use this to our benefit, or our destruction, or our destruction. Just takes yes. one person to pull the wrong string, and then everything unravels. <laughs> everything as we know, everything it. is untied. Oh, there's a Weezer song about that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Pulling the string on the sweater. Ah, uh, I don't know the song. <laughs> I've come undone. How uh, how sexy do you find black holes on a scale of like one to Kardashian? It's like. <laughs> Who says Kardashian is sexy? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, they're, they're, they're super, I mean, they're just yeah. the mind-boggling things. That is an example where you would really need string theory. Um, because, I, I mean, I said before, gravity is extremely weak, right? Extremely weak. So in everyday circumstances, you can actually forget about gravity. If you want to do particle physics, you can essentially not even pay attention, any attention to gravity, all right? And then your quantum mechanics, your, your, your particle physics, that works well. We can actually get amazing results that we can actually test and actually confirm um, what we don't understand is when gravity actually becomes so strong that you can't forget about it and this is what string theory is trying to do so in the in in the center of a black hole so inside a black hole where gravity is so strong um, it's unbelievably strong um, you cannot forget about it you know if you fall into a black hole you are going to know about gravity <laughs> words of wisdom <laughs> yeah. don't forget it tangled in Strings. <laughs> That's an Age Voltron reference. Ah, okay. I thought, I thought it was like a Bob Dylan kind of tangled in blue. Or, or it's a Pinocchio, like uh, Pinocchio reference. <laughs> okay. There's no strings on me. 
Um, if people want to know more about string theory, where do they go? Um, so there are many, I think. So you go to YouTube. Um, can YouTube string theory? Uh, there are a lot of really good accessible talks. Um, you basically, I mean, if you, if you, if you, if you start, if you start watching a talk and someone pulls out um, you know masses of equations which I you know no one can really understand so maybe maybe that's not such a good thing so but I think there, there's plenty of literature there's plenty, plenty of popular popular literature um, there's books for example I think Brian Green writes a very good book um, I think it's the fabric of the cosmos um, people to look out for is Nima Khani Khamed you look this guy up on YouTube he gives amazing popular talks you know and is there anything, any part of string theory that goes too far? Are there, are there any string theorists who you think go too far in a direction or... Um, so, I or, mean... you know, red flags. <laughs> so, okay, so, you know, so, there's, this whole, there's this whole problem. is like, why does our universe look the way it does? Um, you know, because, I mean, if, if, you, if you change the, any of these parameters, you know, the electron coupling or something like that, even by a tiny amount, we get a universe very different from what it is today. Um, very, very, very different. So some, to explain this, some people might postulate, some people actually do postulate, there's, a, there's actually millions of universes out there. So this is known as the multiverse. Um, so again, so, I mean, some people, some people place a huge amount of stock in this, others don't. From my point of view, I mean, this is even less testable than string theory. I mean, how do you test for sure. another universe? Yeah. Um, so maybe, I, I, you know, in my, my own work, my own research, I try to, I try to stay away from this. Okay, <laughs> no multiverses. Uh, this has been fairly mind-entangling, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> uh, but uh, but super, super interesting. Have you got your own website? Or what is your specific field of research yourself? Um, okay, so I, I particularly look at how string theories and quantum, quantum theories are related to each other. Um, so we essentially try and map out a dictionary between the two. So if I want to study something in the string theory, what does it correspond to in the quantum theory? And um, so I'm trying to essentially trying to hash out this dictionary. Um, and uh, so that's, that's specifically what I'm trying to look at at the moment. And um, in terms of my own, I don't, I don't have a website or anything like that. Okay. I have an archive page with his publications, which okay. <laughs> you know. So for um, people to read you, they can Google you or they can. Uh, so I'm on the Vitz website. Okay. So I'm still on the Vitz website. Um, you can look under PhD students. I'm there. Um, and um, yeah, that's about it. Great, Gareth. Thank you for coming to join. I mean, any any other questions from before? Super I hope I didn't string you guys along too much. Here. <laughs> It's terrible, it's terrible. Last pun of the day goes to you. <laughs> yes. Um, this, this has been fun. And uh, if you've just tuned into the podcast now, which doesn't make any sense, and wondering what the music is, it's our new live in-house band soundtrack. Uh, no, it's not. We're live. We're at the Converse creating, celebrating creative spirits and creating celebratory spirits. Um, it's a fest. What do we say? A festivus. A festivus. It's our festivus special. Mm. So thanks for joining us, and uh, hopefully we'll get you back again on the show, maybe in even quieter circumstances, to <laughs> to dig even deeper into the tapestry of the universe. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All the best, Gareth Kemp. Still on Space Live and other dumb ideas. Still at Converse celebrating creative spirits. Aye. Um, 
approaching the end of day one it's a two-day affair if you're listening in now uh you're listening to our festival special the next section of which is going to be a focus on everybody who's here today uh so that includes six creatives from around cape town at varying very very different fields uh today we're going to talk to a cape town creative who's in an even more different field uh howard fivey filmmaker writer director welcome to the show cool good to be here guys thanks so we, we, we're talking about two things. Uh, the first, the, two the controversial one, things. <laughs> two controversial things. One, one of them is your film. Last one's out, uh, which is a micro-budget independent zombie feature film that there you that you produced this year, written, directed, and produced. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about uh, Star Wars: The Force Awakens, which is not my film. <laughs> which is not. At which point, uh, everybody goes, "I'm not listening anymore." Yeah, that's true. So we'll keep that for later. <laughs> let's let's keep it for later. Let, let's talk about last ones out. How did that come about? Man, I've uh, been trying to make films for a while, uh, making a lot of short films, uh, commercials, YouTube videos, and I think like you know the dream in everyone's heart is to make a feature film. And so basically, I just said, "Let me make a feature film," and then I. Uh, I tried many options of getting films funded and they all failed and so eventually I just said let me use what I got and try and make it on like a tiny budget and that is Last Ones Out. But there's more to the story, right? You went through a whole process of yeah. putting your job and asking people to fund you for the year. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like a social media drive behind it. Basically, like I went onto Facebook and YouTube and just told guys, like, you know, my dream, which is I want to make movies. I want to, you know, kind of really follow a passion and, and bring, bring guys along with me. And then uh, I quit my job and I waited to see if anyone would actually fund me uh, for that year when I would then try and write and develop and, and produce films. And it worked. And uh, yeah, so, which is which is really really cool. So I'm super blessed to, to have that opportunity. And then I got to in that year basically make make last ones out. Um, I will I'll, well, the first for the first like two thirds of the year was spent trying to make another movie, which didn't work. Yeah. So then I was like, flip, I'm screwed. I better make something. And I made last ones out at the end. And it was it was a whirlwind of production. From oh, dude, yeah, it was, writing, it was conceptualization, straining to with with a very small team, but a very dedicated team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was uh, 13 days of shooting the whole the whole movie um, of principal photography. After that period, all our actors kind of were scattered around the country, working on other projects and stuff. So uh, it was uh, yeah, it was a mission to to, to get it to pull it off. Um, th- I wrote the script pretty quickly, basically in about like two weeks. Okay. But, but we only had the script like the day we started shooting, so it was really. <laughs> it was really fast. And were you playing? I mean, it's a zombie film. So, what were you? What were your influences? What were you inspired by? Were you playing into the genre? Were you? Were you? Yeah, trying to Yeah, I mean, it was, it was calculated. Making a, zo- a zombie film, it is the easier in terms of like science fiction adventure genres, horror genres, because you don't need robots or you know crazy CG. You can just CG up human beings with makeup. So um, I was thinking along those lines, and then yeah, inspired by Twenty Eight Days Later, um, right. that kind of zo- that kind of zo- zombie, definitely a lot more than like slow walkers. I'm, I'm more into the kind of runners. Yeah, uh, this know. was we 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 watched it with some Mexican friends of ours, and that was <laughs> that was their takeaway. Was you just don't see that many fast zombies, and they enjoyed that this was a film with fast. Oh, great. zombies. Well, that's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, who, who the, how do you cast your zombies? Because they, I mean, some it's of those tricky, guys were yeah. having a great time. Yeah, it's it's actually a lot more tricky than you. Think think you'd think just go and be a zombie but you've actually got to make them you know you've really got to ask them to do uncomfortable things on the screen and see if they can put it off or not so my direction when I was casting them was 
was like, okay, be more like a wolf. Be like a dog with rabies. Be like a hungry person that hasn't eaten food in, in 40 days. You've got to try and use words and see if, they can, if they're convincing or not. You'll be surprised how unconvincing most people are at being zombies. Yeah. You've actually got to be a really good actor to act like a zombie. I can believe it. I mean, <laughs> the, the Walking Dead, some of those yeah. zombies are ridiculous. Dude, World War Z. World those guys. War Z. Those, the, the tooth guy at the very end, you know, yeah. the Rasta guy. It's, I mean, you've got to be a good The performer. guy in the plane. Uh, the yes, guy in the yes, plane. Yes, yes, yes. Chumpy, that guy. chumpy bit on Mr. the Mr. Chomper. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's amazing. So, yeah, this yeah. is uh, the first South African zombie film. Well, I mean, that's kind of how we marketed it, our film, because we, ne- we we didn't hear of any other one. So I was like trying to Google and see, hey, has anyone else ever called their film the first South African zombie film? No one no one did. I didn't discover any. So I was like, rad, we'll take it. And cool. so, yeah, we totally put it out there as the first kind of African zombie film. I mean, I'm pretty sure other guys have attempted to make zombie movies in Africa. Um, I just can't find them. So, uh, so we, we claimed it. But I think, I mean, I would love to make a bigger better African zombie film I think ours was more of a you know a, a first kind of a first entry into that yeah. slot I think there's a lot of room for African zombie films with something you could expand into something with a bigger scope because obviously yeah, you, sure. you you conceptualize a small tight story to go with the limits of the yeah, production and, totally bro um, I would almost love it to be re-envisioned with a bit of a budget and yeah. more time on the script yeah yeah cast great Greg Creek Christopher yeah, Chimano Sebe Vuk Zuma yeah, I mean cool how, did you, how do you get those guys together yo um bro pray hey <laughs> yeah. yeah dude no it was a it was a tricky one but basically greg crick um and myself kind of have been building a friendship but you basically got to have friends you got to pull favors and so greg spoke to some of the actors he got christian on board um chamana was my neighbor when i was okay. living in woodstock literally Great. so i just was like hey you're my neighbor you know are you free next week yeah, um, see him wandering up down uh, rudiman road all the time exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so i just approached him but you'll be surprised People are willing to follow a vision, basically. I mean, you, you'll know what that means. You know, yeah. guys are willing to get behind something if they can see that somebody's putting their guts into it. You know, blood yeah. and guts. And the guys are, are willing to jump, specifically if it's something like um, unique and something not every day. Yeah. That's my question. How do you lead your troops into battle with if you're not leading them with money? You well, I mean, there's there's something else that people are looking for besides money, um, and that's that's the answer. You got to find out what it is that this person's looking for. So my guys were looking for something different and challenging and never before been done to the, in their careers. So that's what I what I approached them with. I said, listen, there's no money up front, but what there is is a chance to be in a zombie film, a chance to act in an English language film, a chance to try an American accent, a chance to do these things you've never done. So most of those guys were really amped to actually do that. Um, and Solid then, accent, by the way. Yeah. Great Creek. creek. Oh, you, 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 you bought it, eh? <laughs> I bought it. I bought it. He did say one word. And he's not here, so I don't want to throw him under the bus. Which one was it? It was buffet. He used the word buffet early in the movie, and it sounded slightly off. Yeah. But out of the 10,000 words he probably said in the movie, 99.999% spot on. That's good to hear. No, I was actually really impressed, because I've heard some really bad accents in this country. That's great. Yeah, he nailed it. No, I got to say, all around, I thought the cast were really fantastic. Thanks, guys. I mean, yeah, from my side as as director, like my, my, my main thing was like, listen, if I can get a convincing cast... I'm happy, you know, and then we did that, and so the rest just followed. Yeah, yeah. Um, the scene when uh, the where Greg's characters in the hospital bed paralyzed was probably my favorite scene in the movie. I think where where it starts and spoiler alert, yeah, starts in dark. Uh, spoiler alert! There's an outbreak. Oh. Yeah, yeah, spoiler alert! There's zombies that run. 
No, he's, he's paralyzed in a hospital bed, and it's told in near darkness a lot of the scene with flashes of his paralyzed face, yeah. uh, knowing that his body, knowing that he can't move his body, and it's the, the, the whole scene is told with audio and Greg's face, basically. Yeah. And yeah, it, yeah. it was fantastic. It was Thanks, man. It was also my favorite scene. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I was so worried about that scene, so it's good that you guys here. Some guys told me, no, no, like, take out less black, show us more of the character's face, and so I was What's going wanted, on? Yeah, and they're like, oh, what's happening now? I always wanted more of the of the mystery and basically the audio to carry that. Yeah. But um, yeah, like I mean, hey, I'm glad it worked for you guys. So that's great. Yeah, it was great. It was awesome. It was it was, um, it was very cool. Where can we see it? Well, uh, currently we are just doing like independent screenings in Cape Town, uh, Joburg, Port Elizabeth, basically around SA. So we'll do some more next year in Cape Town. And uh, we're currently trying to sell the film to VOD. So that'll look like um, probably something like Showmax, uh, Mnet, Box Office. But that'll only, ha- um, guys will have to hold tight until about next year, July. And then it'll, you'll probably, the public will be able to watch it. So How we're kind it? of just doing the, you know, the micro-emergence of the film festivals, this kind of stuff. Is there anything you would have done differently? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. Obviously more money, right? More time, perhaps. But I mean, with the same limitations of money and time, is yeah. there anything you would have done differently with To the be film? dead honest, um, there isn't then. If, if I was talking to, the, to me a year ago, I wouldn't have done anything differently because I didn't know what else to do. Looking back at it now, like a year later, I feel like I've been given like new tools. I like my toolbox has got some new stuff in it that I would now change it. So you know what I'm saying? Like mainly, I would I would work on the story a lot more um, and take it in different directions and, and like spice it up like that. Um, but you, the, you you never know until you go. That's the bottom line. So you got to just take that risk and go for it. Uh, I feel like after making a feature film, now I only know how I'm supposed to make a feature film. That's kind of the irony. And I'll be the first to say that, but they're like loads of holes, you know, a lot of problems. But hey, cool. I'm like, my next project's going to be kick-ass. You know, I think you hear a lot of the great directors say that continuously. They, they only know now how to make a film. I only know now how to make a film. I only know now how to make yeah. a film. These guys have been working 20, 30 years who don't Jesus. feel they've reached the pinnacle of, wow. of storytelling yet. Well, that makes know? me feel a bit better. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, right. So, no theatrical plans for the film? We don't oh, think we're going to go SA theatrical. No, yeah. uh, no you know, it's, it's costly. Yeah. Lang expensive to actually do that. You know, ironically, it's probably going to lose more money than make it unless you've got a massive following, in which case our film doesn't just yet. So, we're thinking rather take kind of play, play the safe route and get it out there as, as we can uh, and then hey hopefully the sequel very last ones out you'll catch that one in the cinema <laughs> more last <laughs> yeah, ones yeah. last two ones out <laughs> last ones out and then the prequel first ones out <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> First ones you in. You can help me make it, bro. Let's do it, yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah, You can just franchise. Fear the last yeah. ones out. Boom, you got it. Dude. All right, yeah. I have a question. Uh, and this is sort of as an aside. We were talking about this as we came out of the film. Did you actually rent a helicopter yeah. in the last shot? Or was it green screen? Um, that was green screen. Was uh, well, actually, not even green screen. It was That was a, th- uh, a 3D model that we, that we got for free. Um, the, so there's oh. like three shots of helicopters in the film. Um, there was a real live Huey helicopter, which was... Um, which I got, I swindled for a bottle of whiskey. Um, so he was shot in a helicopter? Yeah, so real life helicopter, um, but that helicopter was in the middle of the day. In the movie, it's at night flying through the sky. In the, in, in the way we did it was in the middle of the day in a stationary hangar at the waterfront um, where the guy said to me, okay, you got 10 minutes. And I'm super grateful for that because in that 10 minutes, we just chucked our actor in there shot the thing literally in a hangar okay. and then took it back to the computer and cut it all out and mm. made it look like it was flying through the night sky very cool it worked 
Uh, I couldn't yeah. figure it out, yeah, honestly. It, it awesome. didn't look like green screen to me. And we had some amazing help from uh, independent VFX. That's what they're called. Scott Newman, like, uh-huh. he uh, he helped out of all those VFX shots and, like, wrote a scoped, you know, and, uh, yeah. and he, he was amazing. So your, your DOP was fantastic, though. Timmy, I mean, yeah, really. he was great. Yeah. That's the thing, man. You get a strong team around you, you can actually pull something off that's pretty cool, you know? Mm. For whatever art field you're in, you know, the people around you should be better than you, and those guys are all much better than me, so it was great. So what, what what's most exciting you in the local film industry at the moment? I think just the guys are starting to try new things. That's that's basically what it is. You know, it's like we we haven't really had an industry for a long, long time, and uh, everyone's been telling the same story. But lately, the past five years or, or so, we're starting to tell different stories, trying new stories, which is cool. I mean, I can't wait until we have more genre developing yeah. and emerging. I want to see like sci-fi. I want to see horror, action, like thriller, fantasy. That's 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 what makes my imagination come alive. And yeah. for me, cinema has always been like a fostering of my imagination. So that's me g- getting me amped, and I want to be a part of that. Like you know what I mean? Cool. And yeah. you guys are of a similar space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, amazing. And a, and a good and a, and a good segue into, uh, into the film that's captured the world's imagination for the last thirty five years. Yeah. Uh, and at this point, if you don't want to hear anything about Star Wars: The Force Awakens, stop listening stop now. Right now. And this is our on hold music. Okay, so you you must have been one of the first people in the world to see the movie. Uh, IMAX 3D this morning you went out. I didn't do IMAX, I did Prestige. Oh, Prestige, okay. IMAX was sold out. Was it that 4D experience where there's like wind and hail Um, and all that? Wind, hail, rain. No, it wasn't that. It was was 3.5D. Okay, let's keep keep it spoiler free because I also don't want to know story details or, or, or twists or turns, but what's the impression of the film? Is it, is it better than the prequels? <laughs> um, I can definitely tell you it's way better than the prequels. No, you guys will rest assured. Like, it's definitely so much better than the prequels. Uh-huh. I, I think we all knew that. Like, yeah, once yeah, we, yeah. Heard, we heard JJ was on board, we were like, okay, sweet. It's at least going to be as good as Star Trek's reboot. And I would say it totally is and more. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's the it's, spirit of the original Star Wars? I mean, completely. Uh, I mean, I don't want to give away anything. Because beforehand, I was like listening to nothing. But... Think the think the original trilogy, and then think J.J. Abrams, and you're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna be satisfied. I walked out of there, my expectations were really high, and I was satisfied. I'm okay. like I'm like 100 satisfied. I don't think they could have almost done more. Like, um, is it as groundbreaking as the first ones? No ways. Okay. It will never be. Is it grand? I mean, yeah. did you come out of there going whoa, or, yeah. or did you come out going yeah? I came out of there more going like. Whoa, yeah. Whoa, yeah. yeah, yeah Whoa, yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. yeah. It, it's uh, no, it's great. Like, uh, I'm not slating at all. Like, go and check it out. Um, it's it's gonna make you happy at all the right moments. You're gonna laugh at all the right moments. You're gonna be gutted at all the right moments. And I will say, like, I mean, the, vil- the villain. Uh, can I? I, I mean, Luke I, Skywalker. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. No, the, it's got a great villain. Um, the characters are really, really cool. Like, that's what sells the film. You know what I mean? Uh, like, that's the fresh perspective of, of this film basically it's almost like it's very similar to the, the the first three but they're just new characters imagine like Return of the Jedi replaced with new characters okay you got it is or, Jar Jar in it Jar Jar may no or may not be in it no spoilers <laughs> may or may not are there Ewoks once again I will not uh, no comment um, no there aren't Ewoks guys unfortunately but there are a lot uh, it's yeah think think a new hope and Empire have a baby okay Cool. And um, again, no spoilers, but where is Luke Skywalker in the movie? 
don't answer. He's, I'm going to give you a, a conceptual answer. No. He's everywhere, but nowhere. Oh. 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 He's from the beginning to the... He's the Alpha and the Omega. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now you guys are like, what the hell does that mean? He's, uh, he's the beginning and the end. He's the beginning and the end of everything. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a piece of string. He's yeah, the yeah. string. He's the fabric. He's the force. He's the oh. force. He's the, he's the force, which is the string through which the universe That's is uh, he's woven. He's 42. He, um, yeah, he gets away. He's 42. <laughs> <laughs> you got that. Nice. <laughs> This has been Space Life and Other Dumb Ideas. Remember, if you like what you hear, check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, spacelifeandotherdumbideas.com, Facebook, Twitter, or lalelamedia.com forward slash space life. This has been part one of our three-part special. In the next two parts, we talk to Converse's creative spirits about their work. We talk cosmology and the cosmic microwave background. And we also talk about dinosaur sex. So tune in for parts two and three coming soon. This has been a Lalela Media production. For more Lalela podcasts and goodies, you can visit lalelamedia.com.